Welcome to Partnering Leadership, a top global leadership podcast for purpose-driven leaders with a growth mindset, seeking to learn from the leadership journey of change makers and business insights from leading global thinkers. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm delighted this week to be welcoming Julie Rosenthal. Julie is CEO of the strategic communications firm, JR Communications. With over 20 years of experience in public relations and marketing, Julie takes an integrated collaborative approach to communications for purpose-driven organizations. She also brings fresh thinking and a talented team to addressing her clients' diverse needs. In addition to that, Julie is a community leader, having served on numerous nonprofit boards, including having chaired Leadership Greater Washington. I've enjoyed getting to see Julie's impact, both on her clients and through her involvement and leadership in the community, and can't wait to share some of her insights on her entrepreneurial journey and her leadership lessons with the Partnering Leadership Community. I also love hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahanatmahantavakoli.com. There's a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. You can leave voice messages for me there. Don't forget to follow the podcast in your favorite platform. And when you get a chance, leave a rating and review that will help more people find and benefit from these conversations. Now, here is my conversation with Julie Rosenthal. Julie Rosenthal, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I am thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Oh, Mahana, I'm so excited. So thanks for having me. Julie, I've gotten a chance to get to know you and see your leadership and impact in the community. First off, would love to know, Julie, whereabouts you grew up and how your upbringing impacted the kind of person you've become. So for any Billy Joel fan out there, I grew up in a town known as Oyster Bay, Long Island. I don't even say Long Island anymore. It is two (laughs) words, but I definitely was that person. And it was such a small town. It was really lovely. Like, I didn't think it was lovely then. But now when I look back, our high school is 500 kids. It was public school. We had two elementary schools that fed into one middle, which fed into the high school. That's it. We were right on the water. Not my house. The high school was on the water. So it was just, in a way, the idyllic childhood. However, my parents did split when I was nine. And that definitely affected a lot. But I will say that you really felt the community hug very much for where I'm raising my kids now. We're out in Glen Echo, which is this little cute Bannockburn Glen Echo. It's this little snippet of heaven. And I grew up in that way. The divorce that your parents went through had an impact on you. How did that impact you at that stage in your life, Julie? I think it made me grow up really fast because I have an older brother and my mom had to work. And so she worked nights, you know, and she wasn't home a lot. So I learned to cook early on and was very independent. I would cook for my brother and I. She was around, but I would have to step in. We saw my dad all the time, but it was just you definitely mature faster. And I think in a way it was great, but in middle school, I was a little bit ahead of the kids. So I didn't actually feel like I fit in until really I went to college. And what then brought you to University of Maryland for college? So the story goes, my 
brother and my dad went to the University of Pennsylvania. And I was dying to go there, not because of the academics. They had this amazing theater troupe. I went to see my brother and I was like, oh my gosh, it was like a club. And I was like, I want to do that. But anyway, my SATs weren't high enough. So I had asked my brother, I really wanted to go to a big school. I wanted to go to a big school near a city with all the pep and the football games and all of that. And so Maryland was high on my list. I didn't know people here were like, we have too many Long Islanders. I had no idea. I had no idea. <laughs> and so I went to Maryland. I absolutely fell in love with the area. I remember calling my dad the first day I drove into the city and I didn't cross a bridge or a tunnel and pay a toll and park for $25. It was amazing. So I just stayed and started my career. You picked a better school, Julie. You picked a much better school. <laughs> Without as a, a doubt. Trip, and I love it. I'm a terp through and through. I think you were a couple of years ahead of me at Maryland, but Maryland had an outstanding school of journalism, and that's what you studied. What got you involved in journalism? I really didn't know what I was going to be when I grew up, and I had interned for my aunt's sister in New York City, and she was at a fashion PR firm. So she came home, and we were at my aunt's house. And she said, look what my client gave me. And it was this beautiful suit. I'm like, what do you do? She goes, PR. <laughs> so I swear, that became my thing. And I didn't know what PR was. And then back in the day, now it's in the business school where it really belongs. But it was in the J school. And the bottom line with what I do for a living, you have to know how to write. And they really gave us a wonderful foundation for that. And I really enjoyed it. And now that journalism school is like top. <laughs> Back then, it was just this little building. Now, it's the whatever school of journalism. It's a big deal. So that's my alma mater. <laughs> you are the person that put it on the... Right. <laughs> Absolutely, Mahan. I couldn't have said it better myself. When you mentioned you saw this family friend that had gotten a suit, was in PR, so you aspire to be in PR. Now I understand why so many young people want to be YouTubers. They see Mr. Big making lots of money. They all say, that's exactly what I want to do when I grow up. But for me, I didn't know if she made money or not. I just knew she had nice clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all that matters. So that's how you ended up working at an ad agency. Actually, my first job out of college, I was a resident assistant on campus. And my RD boss knew someone at Catholic U. Actually, my very first job was at Catholic U., as the assistant director of alumni relations. I had no idea what that was, but it was like special event planning. But the Jew at Catholic U was planning things for uh, Monsignors. I will never forget this. I had to plan a lunch for Monsignors. And I'm like, okay, I picked out the most amazing menu. And I give it to my boss. He goes, where's the liquor? I go, what do you mean liquor? He goes, Julie, that's all they do is drink. I'm like, what? And he said, top shelf. I go, top what? Like, I didn't know what that meant or anything like that. <laughs> but it launched my career. And five months later, I had sent out a ton of resumes to PR firms. And I finally got picked up by one. So I had a secretary at the university. And then I became a secretary, really bad at it, but got a lot of experience and worked my way up. And I ended up at many agencies. And the best experience was that at the time, it was called B.B. Needham, a huge agency. It was great. And so they didn't really have PR. They had one woman doing it, and they brought in me as the second PR person. And how did you then end up transitioning, Julie, from working for a PR firm to coming on the side of working for companies in PR? 
I got poached. It was great. So the ad agency, ad budgets are huge. And they were working with Southwestern Bell Mobile Systems at the time, which back then it was Cellular One. I'm completely dating myself now. But it's when there was two mobile companies in the market at all times that I got back to the firm and I said, can I pitch? And they're like, "Uh uh-huh, little girl, that's so cute. Sure, you pitch. You get your 5,000 a month, you pitch. (laughs) So we pitched and they were the incumbent and they did not get the account. And weeks later, I get a call and it's, hi, this is Pat. Can you give me a call? And I was like 25 and I was thinking, who's fixing me up? Like it was the weirdest call, like no company. So I call and he goes, so we want you to do our PR. And he's like, I got the account and they didn't get the account. This is so amazing. He goes, no, we want you. I'm like, you want what? And it was a time when the ad agencies were so fun. We had like happy hour Friday, all this fun stuff. I go to the interview. And I actually two interviews. And the second interview is when they put the numbers in front of you, right? And the second interview was at their network operations center, the knock up near Baltimore. And they were in Greenbelt, like where I went to college. I was like, oh, there's no way I'm working for one thing. It's so boring. I'm not going to do it. I'll just play this out. And he breaks this number on a piece of paper. And he goes, so this is what we're willing to offer you. And I was like, it was $55,000. Mahan, I think I was making twenty. It was like ridiculous. And I don't play (laughs) poker well. And he's, but wait, there's more. There's bonuses. And I remember calling my dad and I go, dad, they're throwing all this money. He goes, you're in PR. He goes, you're not going to get a bonus. You have them put that in your salary. I'm like, oh, okay, sure. So I was going to be a hardcore saleswoman. And the president walked by who also took me to lunch that very first time and said, we'll guarantee if you don't make 75, we'll guarantee it was stupid. But <laughs> what was so amazing about that job, I think it launched my entrepreneurial spirit because they really did not have PR at all. They had a marketing guy and some marketing people, but they had no idea what they wanted. I remember they go, we don't know what we want. That's why we're hiring you. And I'm like, I'm 25. It was an amazing experience. So I built it from nothing. The corporate office was in Dallas. I had a PR boss, if you will. But we got to do, because we were in the nation's capital, we did some amazing events at the White House for Southwestern Bell. It was just amazing. I was able to sponsor all sports teams, Wolf Trap. It was just an amazing experience. And I learned so much, but I was really able to do whatever I told them we were going to do, which was nuts, but it worked out. Throughout your career, you have been willing to take those chances I can't yes. believe you had a chance to work on the Super Bowl when you were at Sprint PCS, but then you chose to go to Brazil instead. So what happened was after Salon, my boss left and took me to Sprint. So that year was the Super Bowl in Miami and we were doing all these promotions and my Sprint boss, so I had the market boss and the Sprint boss called and said, hey, do you want to work abroad? I was like, what? Like, I'm doing the most fun thing right now. So it was right after that. And I had hung up on him. I'm like, no, I'm not going anywhere. I've got the Super Bowl. I'm busy. And I was like, you're stupid. You are so stupid. So I call him back. I'm like, so where are you going to send me? And I'm thinking England, no, France. And I just went down Western Europe, Germany, no, Brazil. I was like, what? You're out of your mind. I don't speak Portuguese. No, like, how am I going to do that? The next thing I'm on the plane, because it was the most amazing opportunity. So what was the experience like in Brazil? (laughs) Brazil has gone through economic transformations, but this is before Brazil had gone through its economic transformation. Yeah, it was tough. So the whole reason why Sprint was there 
was to start a new long distance company because they were privatizing. So MCI was already there and we were starting a new Brazilian telecom company in partnership with France Telecom and an English company called National Grid. So it was all these gringos creating a Brazilian company. So it was just the most amazing experience. So I was hired for two months to help the PR guy. And then again, like I don't speak the language and the PR guy was American from Sprint. And then the next thing I know, I'm signing a two-year contract and I'm going to head up the marketing and the ads campaign for this brand new company, mainly because it was one of those, hey, Paul, can I go to that meeting? Oh, you have to go by yourself because we don't have time to meet with the ad agency. Like It was insane. So I did these big international press conferences. I hired amazing people. It was an experience like none other, both in work and then also living in this amazing place. And yes, dangerous, but amazing place. So then why go back to a PR agency after that? Yeah, that's a good question. I swore I would never do that. So what happened was after the project ended, they basically took us off the beach in Brazil in summer and put us in Kansas City where Sprint was based in winter. You are killing me right now. I'm not doing this. I'm working at the big corporate. It's not my thing. I like building things from nothing. All they did was PowerPoints and build a deck. <laughs> so I separated from the company and really their only jobs to come back to were agency jobs. And I had the choice, I'll never forget, between Ketchum, which is well-established, or this startup, which was an offshoot of Hill and Knowlton. So I did the startup and then they folded. <laughs> And the story goes from there. It was awful. I hated it. It was the first experience with millennials. Like millennials wasn't a thing then. But all I knew is these <laughs> kids in 2000 in a tech company were getting tons of money with attitude. So it was quite the learning. Julie, sometimes the setbacks in life provide us the opportunity to become even better. I love Nassim Taleb's writing, including on anti-fragility, where he talks about breakage systems and people that become stronger as a result mm -hmm. of breakage. You had joined Leadership Greater Washington, were starting the program when you had that breakage in your professional life. Yeah. So I had got back from Brazil. I ran into the former president, Tim Kime, who I had done volunteer work with RAP when I was at Cell One. He's, I'm at Leadership Washington at the time and you should do it. It was due in like a couple of days. So we got it done. I got in and that was in the spring and I got laid off soon after that. So I started LGW unemployed and I made the decision. I'm going to just try to freelance. My dad was always really, I can't see you working for someone your whole life. He was a lawyer and he had worked for the city of New York. And then he was like, no, I'm doing my own thing, which he did and was very successful. He goes, I see you as that when I can. And, and it was really abusive. The agency got really abusive. So my morale was down. And I start my LGW class, which was right after 9-11. It was a very difficult time. Our retreat was postponed in September because it was 9-11 time. And I remember getting up and saying, hi, my name is Julie Rosenthal. And I'm a president of JR Communications. And I'm a communications <laughs> And no one laughed, Ma. No one laughed. I thought for sure people would laugh. They're like, tell me more. What do you do? And that was really pivotal because after that class, there's the no solicitation policy. I didn't solicit. I was just meeting people. It was amazing people. 
And at the end of the class, we had the president of Planned Parenthood. And she goes, I think I need what you do. And then I had this one. I think I need what you do. And so a company was born for real, but it was not my intent. And from there, it grew. So as you were doing that, you also got married, had a couple of kids, and went through a divorce while you're building this business. Yeah, it was a lot. And I think now I'm really able to spend time to grow my business. But at that time, it was quite the juggle, no doubt. And, you know, you have your support system and you have your kitchen cabinet, as we always say, that really helped get me through. And many of them are my peeps from LGW and just in the community, right? And so I felt supported. So Julie, you have all of this going on. Why take on the challenge of becoming LGW board chair (laughs) at a time when the organization wasn't financially doing very well? Being board chair, I think, is a full-time job. It really is a full-time job. So why take on the LGW board and then becoming board chair? It's a good question. It's one of those, had I known what it would be like, <laughs> LGW's kissy huggy. I thought that's all I had to do is go to a lot of parties, <laughs> be a cheerleader, and I'm good. Oh my goodness, did I learn. And for me, I had gotten very involved. I became student council rep, is what I always call it, the class rep. And then I kept taking on positions. So I had basically every chair position, like committee chair position. And did great things. I did great in membership and did all these things. So to me, it was a natural progression. And I was honored to have that opportunity. But seriously, had no idea what I was getting into. And you mentioned the challenge. That year was the first year they had a pretty big deficit for that organization. And I'll never forget. So I get the gavel in June at the meeting. And in July, my finance chair, I remember like sitting in front of my house, on the phone with the kids in the house and they were little. He's like, so are you sitting down? It's another 10,000 because you close the books. I was like, it's a what? It's a what? Oh my gosh, what do we do? What do we do? It really stretched me, but we did it. The board was great. We just made some tough decisions and persevered. And I basically said, this will not happen on my watch. We are not going to have a deficit. And so we're going to do everything we can preemptively to make sure that doesn't happen. And so we righted the ship. And now I'm just so proud of what that catalyst did to get the organization to where it is now. So when you reflect on that, Julie, that was a tough experience leading the board at that point. What do you see as some of the key leadership lessons that you learned in helping right the ship? What I would say, number one, is ask for help. Like I wasn't an expert in certain things. So I reached out to people that knew more than me. I'm one person that was never ashamed to ask for help or to recognize where I'm weak to support. And the other thing I would say is to build consensus. Like before every board meeting, I built consensus. I make sure I socialize with many board members so we understood and to get their feedback and test the waters. And I think... Someone once told me, I don't remember, never walk into a board meeting not knowing the vote. So whatever I present, I knew we would get. And so it was building consensus, collaborating, 
and asking for help when we needed it. The time and effort to LGW must have taken a lot from you, emotionally and otherwise. I imagine some of those leadership lessons must have also helped you in growing your business because you've done an outstanding job in growing your organization since then as well. Absolutely. And it's funny, I think now the growth in my company has really come in the past couple of years and in recent months, because now I have the bandwidth to really focus, but I still take those tenants. Like I'm not afraid to ask colleagues for help. I'm not afraid to learn something new. I will say when we early on, I was just PR and I kept thinking my biggest fear in growing my company or being able to still be in business was, I don't know that digital stuff. It intimidated me and I was so afraid of becoming obsolete. And now we do it all and I get it. It was really doing some soul searching to say, how am I going to stay relevant? And I want to use that pivot word, but how do I stay relevant and provide companies or organizations the services they really need? And I still build consensus. I still ask the rabbis for help, if you will, and go from there. So how do you do that, Julie? People running organizations constantly question the value any provider brings to them. Right. Including you with your PR and marketing services. How do you bring value? What are the types of problems that you solve? I think the biggest thing bringing value is the things that we don't measure. So yes, we can measure how we're doing with media coverage. We can measure social media metrics. But what you can't measure is these intangibles. I always joke, one of the services we provide is therapy. (laughs) Like clients need to vent. I used to say, Lucy, the doctor is in five cents. There's a lot of that. My style is to really build a relationship, a personal relationship so that there's such a level of trust, it makes it easier. One example, we had a client recently that was about to have their first fundraiser event. And six weeks before their development director quit, she's a one-man band. And I thought to myself, how can I help? She needs a development person. I have a friend that is on hiatus, brought her in. I put something out with my network. She needed someone in the office and helping her get through. And that is not my services, but that is just, what am I going to do to help this person sleep at night? And how can I add value that way? And the bane or the good part of my business, we're always on. We have to be there. I often talk to clients at seven in the morning because that's the only time we have. And if a crisis comes up, I say, everyone's do crisis communications. I was like, every day is a crisis. Every day, there's something. So I love these firms that build themselves as that. But I was like, every day, it's a different kind of crisis. So I would say that it's the intangibles and it's really building that strong relationship. So as you build those relationships, Julie, what are the types of value that you're bringing to these clients? I think direction. We work with a lot of nonprofits, some bigger, some smaller, and they really don't have the bandwidth or the people to do what needs to be done to tell the world about their services. We're in the storytelling business. So the value we bring and what I tell them is now I can really be your outsourced Marcom department until you figure out, do I want a person in-house? Having my agency background, I really got to see both sides. So I was agency and I was corporate. 
So I've been the client and I've served clients. So I really focus on building a company that would hybrid it, if you will. And so that we really embed ourselves. Sometimes my teams were too embedded because they think we're going to be there all the time. But to me, that's a good problem to have. You can set boundaries there. But I think it's really providing this need to tell their story that they just don't have the capacity to do. As you do that, Julie, and sometimes I feel the same way in that I'm sure you take on some of the challenges, emotional and otherwise, that your clients are experiencing. How do you maintain that balance as you're growing the business, Julie? It's very hard for most people, most especially when you have your name on the business. Yes. Quite a while you have been the business. Yeah. So we're actually getting our people more out there now too. And so my team, many of them are not in the DC area. They're in different states around the country, but they've been working with these clients for a long time. So it's funny you ask, because we just recently had a thing about who sends what to the client so that they get to see all the other names and everybody's on calls because people to this day still think it's just me. And there's no way I could do what I'm doing is just me. And people are getting the whole JRC team. Like they're getting that there is an engine here and they don't have to just call me. On the other side, your sons are also very important to you and close to your heart. How do you maintain enough of a balance to stay focused on them? Because I'm sure the same way I feel about my girls, you feel about your sons. It's like blink of an eye. Where did the time go? So first of all, this whole blink of an eye thing, if my oldest tells me one more time, he's one year away from driving, I might hit up. I'm like, la, 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 I can't hear this. Like, And the thought of you driving scares me. But anyway, so there's that. They're also teenagers now. And so they don't want to hang out with mom so much. But we do spend a lot of time. And I try to spend time with them individually. They're polar opposites, polar opposites. But we make sure we have a dinner or two together and we do fun things together, activities and things like that. I've always put them first. And what's beautiful too is because of the relationship with my clients, they get. Like just this morning, my son's having these horrible migraines and I had to tell my client, I cannot come in person to this meeting and I'm leaving early and just no problem. Like they get, I will drop for them. And we've got plenty of backup. So I think they know. I know that they know that I would do anything. And usually, except during this podcast, I have my phone right here just in case someone needs me. But I think the most important is to build the bond and the trust with your children and the activities and spending time comes. So you've already mentioned your father a couple of times and a significant role he played in your life. He passed away in 2017. How did that impact you? And what are the legacies and the influences from your father that you want to pass on to your sons? Oh, wow. Yeah, he was the number one. He really taught us to be assertive, transparent, which I am and sometimes to a fault. My dad was too transparent. Like, I feel like I judge things over. He would say things that you cannot say that, right? But to not be afraid to speak your mind and also speak the truth. The one thing, my dad was a lawyer, but I think regardless of him being a lawyer, being ethical and honest is like number one. And that's what I teach the boys and to be accountable. 
I don't want to hear it was his fault. Like each of us had a role here. I'm not going there. So my dad really instilled these values. And the biggest one was the end of the day, you got to be a good person. And that's your deal. Because I remember I, I said to him, what is Judaism? Because we weren't religious. We were observant on the holidays and things. And he's, it's all about just being a good person. And that's what I tell the boys, be kind, be honest, and be a good person. That's a beautiful way to carry on his legacy. Additionally, he was very supportive of you, encouraging you to start your business, grow your business that you've done. Over the years, though, you've both been in PR firms, in corporations, as an entrepreneur, being a woman in a man's world can be hard still to this day. And it was horrific when you started out. So when younger women leaders seek your advice, what is the advice you have for them to be able to do well in their careers, whether they choose to work in organizations or go independent as you have? So this might be a little shallow, but it's think like a man especially with billing, with clients of billing, you know, I constantly talk to other women, agency owners, entrepreneurs, and I'm like, oh, we gave a budget. I don't know. And if it was a guy, he would just say, this is it. And this is what you're paying me. And if you don't like it, I walk. Women don't do that. They worry about people's feelings. Oh, their clients' problems. So I would say, stick to your guns. And I can only say this now because I'm just starting to do it and 20 years in because Early on, I did not do that, but for many reasons. You have to prove your worth. You have to have a track record and don't let others put you down. I was in the ad agency business when the guy called me little girl. Yeah, go bid on that thing. And then I went into telecom, which was all Texans where I was. It was Texans. They're like, hey, little girl, you're going to send me to TV school. Like the disrespect was unbelievable. And back then it wasn't Me Too movement. You have to have enough confidence to just be who you are and just stick to your guns. It's interesting, Julie, even to this day, there are studies that show one of the contributors, not the only contributor, one of the contributors to women in many instances getting fewer and lower pay raises in a lot of organizations is because they demanded less. Yeah. So part of what you're saying is know your worth and act on it rather than assuming that people will find and reward your worth. Yeah, that's a very good point. When I counsel young people, they're like, they saw I did a great job and no, they didn't document it. And you have to self-promote. You do. You just do. And it's not obnoxious. You can be obnoxious, but there is a way to do it where you're being factual and taking credit for what you deserve because no one is just going to hand you anything and you have to ask for your raises. You would be proactive. You lay out your career path in that company and you put it on the table and say, how are we going to get there? And one other contributor to the success of people is to be able to see others who have done it so they can aspire to be more like them. So you have gone out you've done it, you're continuing to grow your business and have an impact. And that way you can inspire more women to, as you say, both do the business, promote themselves in an appropriate way, because that PR is not just for organizations. 
right. for us individually as well. Now, your organization has been growing. You have launched a brand new website, which is outstanding for people to find out more about you, your promotion services, PR, marketing. Where can they find out more? www.jrcommunications, and that's with an S, dot com. No one can ever hear the S. <laughs> jrcommunications.com. And really appreciate you sharing your story, Julie, the leadership you have shown in the community, various organizations, including Leadership Greater Washington, and setting an example, both in adding value to the many organizations and nonprofits that you're providing services to, but also setting an example for young women leaders as they aspire to do more, be more. Thank you so much for the conversation, Julie. Thanks, Mahan. I really appreciate it. You have been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review of the podcast on your favorite podcasting app, and forward the conversation to a friend or colleague so you can help more people discover their purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.